the customer experience is sort of the sum of all the interactions that the customer has with your company throughout their entire life cycle. If it's a, an account, it's the sum of all the interactions the account has at every stage through, through their account journey. The single most important thing you can do today is to create and deliver a better experience for your customers. Learn how sales, marketing, and customer success experts create internal alignment, achieve desired outcomes, and exceed customer expectations in a personal and human way. This is the Customer Experience Podcast. Here's your host, Ethan Butte. Today, we're learning from someone who's been out in front of two significant trends that have made a significant impact on customer experience, marketing automation and account-based marketing. But we won't just be talking about CX and ABM. We'll also be talking ABX, account-based experience. Our guest was co-founder at Marketo, a pioneer in marketing automation, where he was the first CMO and helped build the business to $150 million in revenue and a billion-dollar-plus IPO. He was also co-founder and CEO at Engageo, a pioneer in account-based marketing, where he led an acquisition by DemandBase. Today, he serves as Chief Marketing and Product Officer at DemandBase. John Miller, welcome to the Customer Experience Podcast. Hello, hello. How are you? Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I've known of you and your work way back when you hired a guy, a friend of mine, DJ Waldo at Marketo as an early evangelist. And so maybe we'll talk evangelism later. But I spoke today with a mutual friend of ours, Brandon Redlinger, and he let me know, A, he says, hi. And B, he says that you might have something to tell me about scuba diving. When I say scuba diving to you, does do any stories, products, experiences come to mind? Well, yes, because there's a topical thing on this one. So at, at Demandbase, you know, every quarter we do something called Shark Week, which is a week where we have our entire companies just focused on going to generate meetings. And... Um, so I actually shared a video out with the whole company uh, just earlier today of a time when I went diving in Australia at the Manly Aquarium in the Shark Tank, which is a you know, very cool experience. You like get to go in and like literally you're swimming around with, with all these sharks. And my wife was down there with my kids and they get to sort of be in the aquarium tube. You know, so they're watching you, <laughs> you know, as you kind of you know, go around. And so I, there was this one point where, you know, I'm like spending mar- more time looking at my family than I am at the shark because I'm like waving to them and all that kind of thing. And there's this video of this 12 foot shark swimming behind me. I'm oblivious to it. And like, it just kind of literally starts, comes over my right shoulder and over my head, uh, like the, like uh, an Imperial star cruiser or something. Yeah. And, like, and it's like, I'm like, Oh, what the hell is that? You know? And I, and I missed it. So that, that, that's my diving story of today. It's very top of mind because of shark week. So funny. I love this, this image of, of people, humans on both sides of the glass, <laughs> you know, engaging with each other as if one isn't an exhibit, but it's not clear who is, which, <laughs> um, that's so, so good. Quick, practical question, shark week setting meetings. Do you, who do you bring into that? Like, do you bring in people whose job isn't necessarily to set meetings or is this like a really fire up for those people that do that work? Well, we try to do it cross-functionally. So, I mean, we create teams. And the teams kind of compete against each other for who has the most meetings. So yeah, obviously SDRs are making meetings, but AEs as well. Then we also have our account managers, like getting meetings with customers and that kind of thing. This year, we even brought the customer success team in 
where they're competing to see who can invite or get the most registrants signed up for our new advocacy program. So, you know, we really, and, and then marketing's involved supporting all those teams with kind of reasons to call, reasons to reach out, things to set up. So it's, it's a fun kind of week just to kind of get everybody, you know, amped up. So good. I love it. And I just appreciate all of the customer contact. So let's start where I typically start, which is customer experience. When I say that to you, John, does it mean anything in particular? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, the customer experience is sort of the sum of all the interactions that the customer has you know, with your company throughout their entire life cycle. If it's a, an account, it's the sum of all the interactions the account has at every stage through, through their account journey. And, you know, as we all know, the companies that kind of deliver the best experience tend to also deliver the best revenue growth. Yeah. So um, do you advocate for assigning customer experience as a role or a title or a function or a department, or do you view it as something that's shared by all and kind of thematic or a, you know, an organizing principle for work? Like, how do you think about it functionally? I do like having kind of a chief customer officer, you know, or, or some sort of person who overall is accountable for the customers. So I'm going to give you a yes and answer. And at the same time, that person isn't the one interacting with the customers. You know? And so you need to drive that into kind of every touch point. Again, in an ABM lens, the first touch, I mean, there's the, con- the content people are seeing. And the marketing, you know, the thought leadership that they're getting, that's part of the account experience. That outreach from the SDR has a huge impact on your, your account experience. Was this some spamming email that like, they're just like, you know, hey, do you want to go get married on the first date? Or is this actually something valuable and useful and educational? So every one of these things, you know, collectively add up to the account experience. Yeah. So uh, draw that line a little bit. Account-based experience or account experience versus customer experience. Is this just different language just based on your go-to-market? Well, I mean, I, I do think it's a B2B lens on the traditional customer experience. I mean, not, not that the customer experience CX world is all B2C focused, but I like throwing the account-based lens on top of it because CX tends to make people think about each individual. And while that matters, you also need to think about what is that kind of roll up together to the account. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I also like it as an evolution on ABM. Yeah. Yeah. So we will absolutely get into that either very soon or in like maybe 10 or 15 minutes. So before we go farther for people who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about demand base. A, why did the merger or acquisition make sense with Engageo? And then second layer, kind of like, who's your ideal customer and, and what do you solve for them? So you know, Demandbase is the largest account-based platform vendor. Demandbase was the original ABM vendor, you know, kind of didn't invent the term, but really was the first vendor to say, hey, we're really applying technology to solve this problem at scale. We're also the largest with over 700 customers which puts us at about easily double the sort of next closest you know, company. Demandbase historically had been the innovator in, I would call a digital approach to ABM, which I'll characterize as Demandbase is really good at helping our customers identify and find the accounts that matter and using intent data, which we can talk about to really know, well, which of those accounts are, are in market and actually want a salesperson to reach out to them. And then using advertising, account-based advertising, 
to sort of build awareness to the rest. And then when you do attract them to your website, web personalization to give them those accounts kind of a, a more relevant, highly convert, you know, a more relevant, useful experience. So that's what really what demand based did standalone. And it's val- it was valuable, you know, to kind of find attract and attract the accounts that you really want to go after. I started in Engageo coming out of Marketo with a much more marketing automation lens on ABM, which is really about a single view of the account, pulling all the touch points and all the signals and all the data points you have about the account into a single pane of glass that then marketing and sales can use to understand the account. And then to use that information to start to orchestrate interactions and campaigns. Right. So at Engageo, we didn't own a channel. We weren't the ad channel. We weren't the email channel. We were the orchestra conductor that kind of made all those kind of campaigns work together. And then we measured the results. So what's interesting is even though demand-based Engageo were both ABM platforms, almost no functional overlap <laughs> between the two. And when I sat down with the new C- the demand-based's new CEO, Gabe Rogal, just over a year ago, and we really talked about, here's what we do, and here's our roadmap. And then, well, here's what we do in our roadmap. We realized these jigsaw puzzles just fit together perfectly. So we did merge the companies, moved like the wind to deliver a unified platform, which we accomplished in five months. I'm incredibly proud of that accomplishment. And so now we have that new demand-based one platform. And it is the best of both those things I just talked about. We help our customers build an account foundation so they have a single view of, of what's happening, both on your site, out on the open web, and augment that with additional data. And then we help them use predictive analytics to find the accounts that matter and know who's in market, map it to the account journey, engage with them in an appropriate way. Again, depending where they are on the journey, different interactions are going to be appropriate. And then close them by working you know, in a very coordinated fashion with the sales team. Really smart. Does it carry? I does it carry backside too? Does it help? Uh, obviously, with account management and the sustained growth within that account. Yeah, I mean, it, it tends to be slightly more revenue focused than success focused. But a big use case of this is finding pockets for cross sell and expansion. Because you might have a division at a company that is a customer for product A. There might be another buying center at that same account who is just actually showing intent for product B and, you know, making sure you can alert the account team about that kind of stuff. There's an interesting use case also around retention and intent data. Even if you have an account that starts showing intent for one of your competitors, that's a signal alert. You should, your CSM should know about right away. So there are definitely use cases across those different pieces. Love it. Uh, so do I'll take you up on that uh, offer you made a minute ago. Yeah, go a little bit deeper on intent data. What should someone who is just only familiar with it in name understand about intent data, its level of validity, and you've already alluded to some of its use cases? Sure. Well, a good analogy. I mean, a lot of marketers have gotten used to marketing automation in the last 10 years, where we're able to track the digital body behavior. And we're able to say, hey, this this person is on my website and they opened that email and they downloaded that white paper. And that's all information that we can track because it's kind of in our own site, in our own world, which is cool. But what's happened in the last five years or so is marketers have gotten tired of getting a phone call every time they download a white paper. 
and they've sort of gotten savvy <laughs> about it. And they're either not filling out the forms or lying, or they're doing their research out on the open web more than just coming to our own site. And so intent data is really how do we get some of that visibility back to that digital body behavior that's happening out on the web, if you will. And fundamentally, the way it works is a simple kind of four-step process. You know, one, the intent provider needs to get some signal that a person <laughs> is, or, or that a cookie really <laughs> is on a web page. And there's different ways the intent provider can get access to that data. For example, G2 is a review site. And so they know, because people are often registered on their system, they know who it, the person and they know the, the page because it's their own website. At Demandbase, we get our data because we're connected to the B2B advertising bid stream. So there are 2 million websites that anytime they show an article to somebody and an ad is presented, we're going to get that signal back. So that's step one is just you get, you get some amount of signal. Step two is match that signal to the company. And you don't match it to the person because that's personally identifiable information, GDPR problems, and it's creepy. But you can pretty accurately match it back to the company using, a year ago, the primary way you do that was with IP address. Now that we're all working from home, you do it more through the cookie. It got harder, and there's a lot of data science involved to try to map individual cookies to, to companies. But you, you match it up to the companies, step two. Step three is you understand what the page is about. You know, and sometimes you can just look at like the keyword content on the page, but not always. Example I like to use on that one is just like the keyword lead scorer. That might mean that it's you know, somebody who really cares about market automation and predicting which leads are the hottest to go to sales. It might mean who got the most points in a basketball game. Right. And so you need to sort of be a little smarter than just looking at keywords and like understand the context of the page and the nuance, which leads us now to step four, which is you have this like data set of accounts looking at topics. And then you throw lots of machine learning at it and you figure out, first of all, baseline patterns. And you say, huh, this account tends to read a lot of content about cybersecurity. So if I sell cybersecurity software, that's probably a more interesting account to me than one that doesn't tend to read a lot about cybersecurity. Or maybe that account that doesn't read a lot about it still is one I want to go after, but they're just earlier in the, in the process. And then the other thing you do is you look for spikes and patterns. And what we actually, what Demandbase does is we actually look at the patterns and in intent that your opportunities, your customers go through as they lead up to becoming a recognized opportunity by the sales team. And when we see other accounts that show that same pattern, we're able to identify it before they're the opportunity and say, boom, this is one you should be paying attention to. We call that a marketing qualified account. It's like a play on the classic MQL, but boom, pay attention to this one, reach out to them. Cause you know, normally people don't want to get called by a salesperson. But there are those magic moments right when they're that entering that research cycle when they actually are open to a relevant outreach. You know, and those, those spikes in the intent data is how you kind of you know, identify those. 
it's really that pattern matching layer that you add at the end is super, super interesting. And, and obviously, for folks who are listening, this obviously creates a much better experience for people, especially when you're reaching out to lend that support. I think, you know, to the back to the you know, filling out forms perhaps with fake information. I mean, not only did we not want to, cause I was, you know, on the receiving end of a lot of that, not only do we not want to get a phone call immediately, but oftentimes that, you know, what was being held behind that wall, wasn't that interesting or useful anyway. And so, um, you know, over promise under deliver type stuff. And so this, uh, this ability to forecast, interest is very, very interesting. Thanks for breaking down those four steps. It was very helpful. And I would like to go back, if you don't mind, I would love to go back to 2003, 2004, you know, just before the founding of Marketo. Like, what were you seeing in the world at that time that said, all right, let's go do this. The world needs this and the world is ready for this. So I'll point to two really big factors. The state of marketing automation in in that time was that it was all traditional on-premise software. I worked at a company called Epiphany, which was actually the hottest IPO of, two, of the internet bubble. And this was like three, $400,000 software companies would buy. And then they spend at least that much with Accenture to get it implemented. And that was what people did when they needed marketing technology. And frankly, as a result of that, MarTech never took off because most CFOs think of marketing as a cost center. And you don't typically do big capital investments, like I just described, into cost centers. And so it was very hard for marketers to say, hey, let's do this big investment you know, for, you know, for, for, for me. The flip side, though, is marketing has very large OPEX budgets, discretionary dollars. You know, they can drop 50 grand on a trade show pretty easily. And so right around this time, software as a service was becoming mainstream. And that was really, honestly, a huge unlock for marketing because it allowed vendors like Marketo to come on board and say, we're going to give you this powerful enterprise class software that you might have spent $300,000 for, but we're going to let you buy it as easily as you buy Google AdWords. And that, that was a real just unlock on the business model. The other big thing that was going on is that again in this time frame marketers were just really beginning to generate online leads at scale remember google adwords only launched in 2002 and so marketers honestly for i mean for the first time were starting to kind of be exposed with this problem of how do i capture these leads that i'm generating off of these google clicks and other things i need a place to put them oh and by the way just because somebody filled out my form doesn't mean they're ready to talk to a salesperson so how do I identify the ones that are good and how do, what, how do I nurture, do something with the rest and not just drop them on the floor? And so those two things came together, a business problem of needing to sort of manage these leads and an economic model that let marketers buy it that was the um, really caused explosion in MarTech. Really interesting that shift to, uh, to a, uh, an operating expense rather than a capital expense Really good. Makes perfect sense. And of course, the opportunity at the time. How, for better and or for worse, where are we with marketing automation? How has it evolved and or how has it been stagnant? Well, you know, I mean, marketing, we build on market automation around the lead. You know, and, and that's something that, you know, I, I talked earlier about. Yeah, people were kind of generating all these leads. And we built it with a, a, a model that was very focused on marketing, almost doing a baton handoff to the sales team. 
I generate the lead. It's ready to go. Here you go. And then actually we built a, a feature in Marketo, which when sales took the, took it, we would turn off the marketing you know, to, to that person because sales didn't want us marketing to, to their deals. So that model is ingrained in the technology and is also very focused on new, new logo acquisition. And that's hard stuff to evolve away from. I mean, that's deeply embedded in the product and the way it works and all that kind of stuff. And that's ultimately what, part of what led to the opportunity for all these new account-based vendors. I tried to do ABM back at Marketo with a tech stack of Marketo plus Salesforce. And we had good results, but it was really hard. I mean, I made my team kind of crazy with just literally all the contortions we had to do to try to make it work. Yeah, I love it. You, you, you already started answering where I wanted to go next, which is, you know, flash forward to 2013, 2014. What were you seeing in the world at the time that said, all right, now is the time for a, an offering like in, uh, Engageo. You've already previewed it a little bit, but feel free to, to take another step deeper into that. Well, again, it was, it was one of those things where like, I could see that ABM was starting to become a term out in the marketplace. You know, it was very early of the conversations going demand based and just starting to get some traction finally talking about, about the concept. And then I replied that to the fact that I had the business challenge of, Hey, I was trying to do it, but it was hard. <laughs> so clearly there's some, there's some opportunity to kind of go in and, and disrupt the space. Interestingly, I wasn't the only one terminus got started around the same time. And so you sort of almost saw this whole move of people who came from the market automation industry moving to start ABM companies all in 2015. And that kind of, I think, led to the explosion of the virtual circle of vendors talking about it. Customers are excited. More vendors talk about it. Customers get more excited. And boom, here we are five years later. Yeah, and I love it. Obviously, it was a, a pressing need. I mean, you already explained it. I've heard so many really good origin stories that are based in, I had this problem, I needed to solve it. And I realized that everyone else had or enough people had the same problem that I could, you know, commercialize it. Another area of interest is for me, you know, I, talk about generically, the term is like an evangelistic sale. Right. So when you're pioneering in a new space, you already mentioned that, you know, the, the buzz was getting around, but there's a point at which you're either solving a new problem or you're solving a familiar problem in a new way that requires some level of evangelism where, you know, the marketing process and the sales process is as much about creating awareness and understanding of the problem, not just the solution. A, did you experience that, you know, in the early stages of Marketo and Engageo? And B, what, what is the transition point? Like, when did you feel like, okay, the market understands what we're doing now so we can change our sales and marketing language or process? Like, when do you recognize that people are coming to you in a way where they clearly understand the problem? And I'm asking this in a somewhat self-interested way. You know, I, at BombBomb, we make it easy to record and send video messages in a variety of platforms and circumstances. And, you know, we're, we're somewhere in that transition where enough people understand what's going on but they're still not clear that what I'm doing today, I should maybe change that a little bit. So like, I, I just assume that you experienced similar being so early kind of in both of those categories. What, what would you say about evangelism and the evangelistic sale? Well, I think first off, I won't say I have a knack for it because I've only done it twice, but at least twice, you know, I've sort of been successful at kind of timing a category right when 
it seems to kind of be hitting that inflection point. So I, I don't feel like either in marketing automation or ABM that I invented it or I evangelized it on my own. I think we just kind of got in there right when a, there was a, you know, in both cases, there was another com- bigger company already talking about it. Eloqua talking about market automation, demand base talking about ABM. But I was able to go in and sort of maybe help to kind of define it and own it myself, which would got amplified by some other also people talking about it. So if you can find that, that's a really good time and place to be because it's a lot less heavy lifting than doing it yourself. And in both cases, the thing that really was the unlock for me was just trying to sort of be the definitive source of thought leadership content for the, con- for the, the concept. I literally at Marketo, I wrote the definitive guide to marketing automation. At Engageo, I wrote the clear and complete guide to account-based marketing. 175 pages. And I think anybody who read it knew that this isn't marketing fluff. This is worth the form fill out you know, because this is really good. Totally. And that thought leadership really, I think, kind of helped to sort of establish the connection. Yeah, really good. A little bit of a change up here. You know, you've been early in companies that have uh, experienced significant growth. What did you try to do as a leader in those organizations, like from a cultural standpoint? And one of the things that emerged immediately in the theme of this show, and I, I don't know what number this will be like 128 or something like that. A theme that emerged early in this podcast was the relationship between employee experience and customer experience. And obviously internal culture is something that our customers experience with and through us in a variety of different ways, some of them more tangible than others. But what are some things you looked for early on to form the type of culture that you thought would be helpful for the organization? And or in growth, what did you do to preserve what was good about the early culture? I've always said Marketo was successful despite our culture, not because of it. You know, at at Marketo, we honestly did not spend enough time thinking about culture, we just happened to have a really, really good product in a really good category. Uh, and that sort of solved a lot of problems. At Engageo, though, I sort of took that lesson. I was very intentional about the culture. I mean, Brian, my co-founder and I, we laid out three sets of core values before we even incorporated the company. And I made sure to talk about them at every company meeting, you know, because kind of all the classic stuff. But the point is, took it seriously. Another thing that we did very early on is we made culture everybody's problem and not just mine as a CEO. We actually created these culture committees and we had one group who worked on literally how are we going to pay people like and promote people and another group that worked on perks and another group that worked on hiring practices. And everybody felt part of part of the culture because they were really helping to kind of craft it and build it. And we kept that concept kind of all the way through as we sort of built, built and grew the company. Those are definitely going to be some kind of key things I, I, I pointed to. Really good. We, we ended up forming cross-functional teams, voluntary basis around a few key themes before we even had any version of HR here at BombBomb. And then we ended up holding on to it for a lot of the same reasons that you described. And I think it rotates every six months. And then so you get these like interesting blends of people solving problems. And, and to your point, I think failing to address them is not the answer. Assigning them to some some specific HR type of function isn't the answer. I, I love this employee engagement piece of it, especially for the cross-functional benefits where different team members get to know people from other teams. I would be remiss if I didn't ask a quick drive-by on this intersection of chief marketing officer, 
and chief product officer. It's certainly a title I've not uh, hosted on the show before. I, I can see just looking at at your background, I see how they intersect. But how did you and the executive team at Demandbase say, you know what? Yeah, let's put marketing and product together with John. Sure. Well, I mean, partly it's it's um, like I, ha- I was running product. And, you know, the biggest, most important thing we had to do as a company was bring the two platforms together. So we did that, we accomplished it. And then I think what we realized as a leadership team is great. We've got the best product in the category. Now we got to tell the world about it. And so a little bit was like, all right, give me the ball. You know, I, I know how to market this thing. So partly it was just me saying, I want marketing too. But I think the thing that makes it unique for a company like Demandbase is we sell marketing software. Right, it's marketing product for marketers. So I get to be my customer, uh, and and that that intersection, kind of combining my marketing experience and my product experience as a user, as a developer, and all that, it, it does create some very positive synergies. It's a little bit unique to kind of our situation, and and I will also say, it's really hard. Uh, you know, so I'm not sure we'll see how long it lasts too. It's definitely a challenge to sort of be running two departments. Yeah. Is it a lot of hat switching? Like, like focus has to, okay, I'm going to stop doing this and focus on this. Yeah. And just a lot of managers to hire and a lot of people, you know, teams to build and, and all that kind of stuff. So, but it's fun. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Cool. Okay. You uh, graduated magna cum laude with a physics degree from Harvard you're in the top 10% of your MBA class at Stanford. I would love a quick take from you on the value of higher education for a variety of reasons. I feel like it's kind of culturally under assault, but I expect that you would say something like it served you well. I just love any any thoughts you have on the value of higher education in today's environment. Well, I don't regret the sort of physics undergraduate degree, you know, that quantitative analytical research has, or mindset I think has, has served me well, even as a marketer, which most people tend to think of as a creative profession. Marketing is all art and science. And I think that's sort of been, been really, really essential. You know, and then for the MBA, everybody's going to say this, but the values in the network, the people you meet, the contacts I've, I've been able to make, you know, that's, that's even more important than anything you actually learn in the classroom. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I enjoyed my MBA experience as well. The one thing I will say about the MBA in particular was that although I I can't say I learned this one thing, it gave me a broader respect for kind of the seats at the table at at almost any kind of leadership table you'd find yourself at. Uh, One other thing I'll quickly say, at least about an MBA, is it's really important for people who want to switch careers. If you're in retail, you know, but you really want to get into banking, like you probably aren't going to be able to do that very easily, but you can do it graduating from an MBA program. So really key for career switchers. Great bonus tip there. And if anyone is curious about an MBA experience, I only have one myself and it's not as probably as uh, rigorous as your own, but feel free to email me, Ethan at bombbomb.com and, uh, and ask about that. If you are listening at this point, I've got two other episodes that I know you'll enjoy. Episode 99 with Ian Luck, who is the VP of global marketing at a company called Customer Gauge. And the reason that one came to mind uh, when I was thinking about you, John, was that we talked a lot about the evolution of NPS to monetized NPS 
access to account experience and account sentiment. And this idea of moving from the individual view on an NPS to an actionable, uh, you know, revenue oriented treatment of NPS to this whole kind of account sentiment, account experience idea. That was episode 99 with Ian Luck. And then much, much earlier, episode 19 with David Cancel, who is the founder of multiple companies, including Drift. Like you, he was a chief product officer. Uh, he was chief product officer at HubSpot for a spell. And we talked quite a bit about kind of broader trends as we did a little bit here too. And that one was called Why Customer Experience is the Only Differentiator Left. That was episode 19. John, before I let you go, and I so appreciate your time with me and with listeners, I'd love to give you two opportunities. The first is to thank or mention a person who's had a positive impact on your life or your career. And the second is to give a nod or a shout out or a mention to a company that you appreciate for the experience they give you as a customer. Sure. So I'll give a shout out actually to my high school journalism teacher, Nick Ferentino, who unfortunately passed away a few years, so he won't be able to hear this. I sort of mentioned I didn't regret my physics background because it gives me the quantitative you know, side of marketing. But another thing that's been hugely important for me as a marketer is my ability to communicate and write. And Nick taught me how to write. So uh, that, that, I really, really appreciate that. In terms of a company with a kind of great customer experience, uh, I actually want to give a shout out to my wife's business. She's an online shoe retailer. The company's called Bells and Becks. She imports shoes from Italy that are very kind of wearable. If you read the reviews that she gets on her site, half of them are about the shoes, half of them are about the experience. And I think it's, it's interesting for me as an observer to just really see how, how well just giving people this amazing experience, you know, high customer service, really makes people loyal to the brand. So uh, small business, and it's easier for small businesses in some cases, but proof that it really works. Yeah, I really appreciate both of those very much. You're not going to write a 174-page uh, definitive guide without a strong communication foundation, specifically writing. And I agree. I think one of the neat things about, I, I don't know the scale of your wife's business at this point, but what you learn from all of that direct contact and generating those first 10 five-star glowing reviews is the foundation for any kind of scale or growth. I mean, that that direct communication where you truly feel people's pain at an individual level and these types of things is without that, my suggestion here is that a lot of people scale things way too early before they have enough really direct customer contact and empathy and understanding and really earning earning that repeat business in the beginning in a non-scalable way is, is the foundation for long-term success. Well said. Thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for your time here. Hey, uh, how can someone follow up with you or with demand base or maybe order shoes from your wife? Where are some where are some sites or places that you would send people to follow up on this conversation, John? Yeah. So, I mean, definitely you know, learn about demand base on our site. We have some online demos that are really awesome. Uh, if you have, you know, want to dig in more, best way to probably find me is on LinkedIn. John Miller too, and shoot me a message. And yeah, awesome, awesome Italian shoes are at bellsandbecks.com. Awesome, exactly, is it spelled? Yeah. Cool, sounds good. Thanks so much, have a great afternoon and thanks for sharing your experience with us. Take care. Clearer communication, human connection, higher conversion. These are just some of the benefits of adding video to the messages you're sending every day. It's easy to do with just a little guidance. So pick up the official book, Rehumanize Your Business, How Personal Videos Accelerate Sales and Improve Customer Experience. Learn more and order today at bombbomb.com slash book. That's B-O-M-B-B-O-M-B.com slash book. 
Thanks for listening to the Customer Experience Podcast. Remember, the single most important thing you can do today is to create and deliver a better experience for your customers. Continue learning the latest strategies and tactics by subscribing right now in your favorite podcast player or visit bombbomb.com slash podcast.